minimum wage law starts with, say, uh, the first approximation with a good intent. In other words, the idea is, here are these four people, and they're making a salary below which the critic wouldn't want to live, or at which the critic wouldn't want to live, and it's too bad these people have to work for a dollar an hour, or whatever the amount is, and therefore something should be done to help them, and the therefore consists of passing a law saying from now on nobody's allowed to work at, say, less than X amount per hour, $1.50 an hour, $2 an hour, whatever. There's several problems with this looked at philosophically. One is that if you want to help people who are making less than $1.50 an hour, it seems a rather peculiar way of doing it to start off by saying, thou shalt not work at less than $1.50 an hour, or thou shalt not employ other people below a certain amount. Because what happens if, assuming law is obeyed, what happens if uh, the employer takes you at your word and doesn't employ you at less than $1.50 an hour, and there you are on the beach, getting zero per hour? The law is, is a purely prohibitive law. All it says is, we make it illegal for anybody to work at or anybody to be hired at less than a certain amount. Okay, so what happens if you're not hired that amount? Period. Presumably the fact that the person was working, say, at a dollar an hour, meant that he preferred working at a dollar an hour to no income whatsoever. And yet he is now being deprived of this choice, because now the government is saying, you cannot be hired for, less, for this amount. In the beneficent structure of government intervention, to help all sorts of people, the consequences of many of these actions are overlooked. If you say, we want to help these poor people, these marginal workers, as we call them, if you outlaw their being hired at what the marginal amount, the net result might well be and will be, but they won't be hired at all. What you're doing, in effect, if you put wage rates on the y-axis, put quantity of labor hours purchased on the x-axis, which is, of course, is our old supply-demand diagram, and you have a demand curve for labor falling, a supply curve of labor rising, the intersection point is the free market wage rate. The government puts its minimum wage law above the free market point. If it puts it below it, of course, it's sort of it's simply inapplicable. It's rhetoric. In other words, if the government passed a law tomorrow saying it's illegal the pain of death, torture, and whatever to employ anybody for less than 10 cents an hour, it's not going to have much of an impact. There's very few people being employed at 10 cents an hour. So we have the, the minimum price control line above the equilibrium point. In this case, it's wage control, but the principles are the same. In the case of the farm prices, farm production, you set of soybean prices or wheat or whatever above the market level, you say nobody should be allowed to buy or sell wheat below that, you set up a situation where the supply of wheat is greater than the demand for wheat, and you have an unsold surplus. In the case of wheat, the government buys the, the wheat and stores it unused in the in various warehouses. The taxpayers and consumers lose because of this. In the case of labor, supply of workers at the, the higher amount of such and such is the supply line. Demand for labor is now lower, below the supply. We have now a gap created by the minimum wage law, an unsold surplus of labor, also known as unemployment. When you talk about unemployment, by the way, distrust all economists. This is sort of a general rule, not just for, for wages, for anything else. Distrust all economists never talk about the price system. And you find this through many establishment economists, Keynesians and so forth, there will be all sorts of uh, elaborate models where somehow the actual guts of the system get left out. Same way with unemployment. It's senseless to talk about unemployment without talking about at what price, at what wage are you talking about. For example, if a businessman is selling furniture, uh, say tables, and he says he's wailing about an unsold surplus, he can't sell as a surplus. If he's charging $10,000 for a table, the guy down the street is charging $500, sure, he'll have an unsold surplus. So the solution then is worth cut the price until they can sell the inventory. It's the same way here in the labor market. Anybody can be unemployed if you raise your wage rate high enough. 
If I let it be known to all and sundry, I will not work for less than a million dollars a year, I'll meet my high standards by not working at all. So talking about unemployment is senseless without saying unemployment at what wage rate are you talking about? Uh, if I brought my wage rate down considerably, I could probably be employed as I am now. There's a sad case of an acquaintance, long-standing, who was a free market economist, who writes about minimum wage laws quite intelligently, yet in his own personal life has applied this peculiar principle. Fifteen years ago, he decided that he was worth a certain amount. He would not take a job for less than that. And that was pretty high. It was those of us who knew him was considerably above his marginal productivity. And as a result of which, he has not been employed for the last 15 years. In other words, you render yourself unemployed by upping your wage rate, your minimum wage rate. In the case of the minimum wage law, it's the government that does it for us, or for the marginal workers. People who become surplus, in other words, the unemployed people who become unemployed, are the, are the very people whom the government is supposed to be helping. If you, if you jack up the minimum wage law, say to $1.60 an hour, the guys who will be unemployed will not be the $10 an hour people. They're in great shape. It's the marginal workers, the ones who are getting about, say, $1.50 an hour, will be tossed out of employment. A beautiful case of negative feedback. What happens is, of course, is the supply curve of labor being pushed to the left, in other words, the supply curve of labor being restricted, the people who continue working are really benefit from this because they are, their competition is being excluded from the market, which will lead us to believe that perhaps one of the reasons why organized trade union movement is always very much in favor of minimum wage, almost the higher the better, is because if you keep jacking up the minimum wage, $1.60 an hour, $2, $2.20, 3 etc., you're kicking out marginal workers from the labor market. They're not available to compete with existing union members with seniority and so forth. As a matter of fact, much of the social legislation in the past 50 years can be looked at, or 70 years, as a result of this kind of pressure, both as part of businessmen and unions, keep out competition. In the case of labor, it's the union movement, keeping out immigration, for example. AFL, which was the trade union federation in the 1920s, was the major lobbyist responsible for keeping out immigrants, for changing the United States from a free immigration system, which it was since the 1770s, to a very tightly controlled situation, a very and a quota system and all the rest of it. This was brought about by the AFL, pushed the supply curve of labor to the left and raised the wage rates of those who were lucky enough to be immigrants before 1920. Just as licenses restrict people into the medical profession or to the photography business or whatever, immigration laws keep out foreign laborers to compete with, with existing residents. And minimum wage laws do a similar thing by, in an indirect way, by rendering people unemployed. In general, I urge everybody to look at government measures, not in terms of the public welfare, the common good, and all the rest of it. Not in terms of tragic failures to achieve this, which of course it is. The government is doing all sorts of stuff, seemingly for the public interest, the common good, the general welfare, all of which are usually inimical to all these things, if we can even define them. But to look at government in a very different light as a conscious agency for doing all sorts of monopolizing, cartelizing, and restrictive things, in other words, the government is not that dumb, or the government leadership is not that dumb, or the lobbyists. For example, compulsory attendance laws and keeping kids in school for uh, umpteen years keep an enormous number of kids off the labor market. So instead of kids working, they're forced to go to public schools or high schools and being kept off the labor force. Quality of the education they get, as we now know, is pretty bad. So the public schools perform a custodial function of keeping kids off the labor force. And all sorts of other measures, for example, urging everybody to get an AB, urging everybody to get a PhD, all these things, that you can hardly enter the labor force anymore until you're about 35. As this spreads throughout the society, younger workers get, get excluded from the labor force and 
raises the wage rates of those who are lucky enough not to be caught up in this. We have this kind of deliberate restrictionist policy in the labor market. The child labor legislation, and we look upon it in a different light. Instead of being a bountiful legislation to help kids, what it really is is a legislation to keep kids off the labor market. Back in the early 19th century, it was a great boon to kids to be on the labor market because they were working instead of starving at home. Almost nobody felt that kids were being exploited as they were working in the textile factories. It's only later on, looking at it from the point of view of a much more affluent society, we don't have to have kids working in the factories. We look upon all this with horror. But at the time, considered a great argument for factories. One argument the protectionists used, the free traders were never able to really meet. The protectionists say, cotton textile factories are a great thing, we should deliberately subsidize them or restrict them, you know, imports so that we can have employ more kids in the factories. And the free traders never answer by saying you're a bunch of monsters in your favor of hiring kids. <laughs> they have to concede that it's a good thing that it's working. Anyway, now we have a complete reverse of this, where kids are being excluded from the labor market by all sorts of legal measures. In addition to compulsory attendance laws, also child labor laws. The true historian looks at measures of government like this. First he says qui bono, who benefits from a government measure. You look around, you find the unions benefit from child labor laws or minimum wage laws or immigration restrictions. But then you don't stop there. You see, this is a sort of unsound conspiracy view of history. There's a, there's a rational conspiracy view of history as an irrational sort of sloppy conspiracy theory of history. The sloppy view only says qui bono, and then says, aha, these guys are responsible, they're evil, and so forth, and starts attacking unions, etc., on that basis. The true conspiracy theorist, the rational conspiracy theorist, and then he looks more deeply and looks at who caused these measures, who brought them about, who lobbied for them, who keeps lobbying for them, and by God, he finds it's the labor union. <laughs> this confirms it. This makes him a scholar instead of a hopped up <laughs> paranoid. <laughs> so scholarship is essentially confirming your early paranoid <laughs> to, a more, to a deeper factual analysis when we get to monopoly and so forth. The same way the Rockefellers in oil or whatever. It's not enough to say the Rockefellers always benefit from every government measure. You have to go into detail and find out if they really lobbied for it. And you find, I guess, indeed they did, and then you, that wraps it up. <laughs> And see, the thing about the minimum wage people, they resist this. And that is to say, all right, if you say that the minimum wage laws don't create unemployment, that's your contention. Why stop at $1.60 an hour or $2 or $2.50? Why not go all out? I mean, if it's really a good thing, why not $10 an hour, $100 an hour, $1,000 an hour? <laughs> I mean, why not? What's the problem there? And the thing is, there seems to be some fuzzy knowledge on the part of the minimum wage advocates that there would indeed be something wrong with pushing the minimum wage up to $1,000 an hour. In fact, of course, we'd all be on the beach would be 99% unemployment or 100% unemployment in that situation. They have to sort of acknowledge that if you press them on this. In other words, again, the minimum wage people have indeed been fairly intelligent in limiting the minimum wage to only disemploying a certain amount instead of disemploying everybody. They're limiting this. As a matter of fact, I saw an interesting journal article a year or so ago trying to analyze the minimum wage advocates, concluding that, well, what they do is they keep the minimum wage low enough so it's not to disemploy the majority of the, of the labor force. You start disemploying, say, 51% of the labor force, and it's getting kind of hairy. You're losing your constituency. If, on the other hand, you only disemploy 10, 20, 30, not so bad. So there's a certain psychological or political limit, I should say, on, on, the, on the minimum wage laws. But in theory, of course, the minimum wage advocates don't acknowledge this. They don't sit down and say, yeah, you're right. It might lead to some unemployment. They just sort of stop at $1.60, $2.20, whatever. Something in their gut must tell them but there's something wrong with pushing it higher. Of course, what's wrong is you're disemploying people, and if you disemploy people at $10 an hour, then you'll also be disemploying people at $2, except less. 
What you're doing is the majority of the labor force is oppressing the minority, the disadvantaged, the marginal workers, the very ones that everybody's weeping about. These are the people who are being put on the beach, are being disemployed by the so-called liberal humanitarian action of minimum wage laws. Interestingly enough, I've had conversations with intelligent minimum wage advocates. If you go through a little bit of this, and they will acknowledge they'll go on to a higher level, or another level. I wouldn't say higher level. The second line of defense for minimum wage laws is, okay, you're right. They do disemploy people, but it's a good thing because people shouldn't be forced to, in quotes, work at this demeaning wage. It's better for them to be on welfare. It's better for them to be unemployed and living on welfare and this to be working at less than $5 an hour, or whatever the rate is. And here we reach a kind of a moral impasse. What do you do with people like that? Well, I'll leave it to your imagination. <laughs> in other words, really down deep in their gut, they will acknowledge this fact, but they don't care about it, almost in favor of it. There are various examples of this, even in the George Stiegler, in his, I think uh, one of his early editions of Theory of Price, talks about what happened when, during the 1930s when the first federal minimum wage law came in. I think it was 40 cents an hour. That sounds very low. But for the 1930s, it wasn't that low. We have to consider the prices of whatever it is, triple or something since then. There were quite a few people who were making, say, 30 cents an hour who were disemployed by the 40 cent minimum. And the case he gave was the, the clam diggers, those cannery road types in John Steinbeck's novel, were out there clamming in California. And the thing is, the clammers were making 30 cents an hour, which sounds terrible, but the point was they went out there, it was mostly Mexican-American clammers, Many of them had a large, I realize this is a stereotype, but still it's true. Many of them had large families. And so all of them went out there, so the husband, the wife, and the eight kids would go out in the clam boat, and they all clam for 30 cents an hour, the result of which was a fairly decent income for the whole family. The 40 cent minimum wage came in and disemployed the whole group because at 40 cents, it didn't pay for the canners, etc., to hire them for the clamming, so they all became unemployed, and Steinbeck came around and wrote heart-running stories about the unemployment in Cannery Row and so forth, not, of course, realizing this was due not to capitalism, but to the minimum wage law, even at 40 cents. There are other cases of this in the minimum wage laws. For example, minimum wage laws often exempt various industries. Cleverly, they exempt a low-wage industry, like uh, restaurants, agriculture, etc., etc. And they do it not because of the evil political influence of the agri-business or the restaurant business, because they're not that powerful anyway. They do it because they realize deep in their gut that if they extended it quickly to everybody, they all be unemployed. You have a vast amount of unemployment in agriculture and restaurant business, etc. They do it very gingerly and sort of step by step. In other words, just enough to disemploy a few people, but not, not everybody. Disemploy a minority. But once in a while, you have sort of case studies. They extend minimum wage laws, and suddenly everybody's out of work. New York Times had an article, I don't know, four or five years ago, it was about when minimum wage laws were finally extended to cotton uh, plantations in, I think it was Mississippi. There's a whole front-page article, because even the New York Times at this point can understand the relationship between minimum wages and unemployment, because it was immediate, it was clear, it was, it was sort of immediate feedback. All of a sudden, on January the 1st, whatever the date was, minimum wage laws was suddenly extended to the previously exempt industry, cotton plantations, and bingo, 10,000 cotton plantation workers are out of work. It was a very quick and obvious kind of, kind of situation. Even the Times, as they could grasp this, I don't think they extended it to the rest of their philosophy or anything, or even to the rest of their ideas on minimum wage laws. But at least for this particular point, they, they could grasp this. What happens to these 10,000 people? Well, either they go on welfare in Mississippi, or they come up to New York, go on welfare or work. But the point is they're being disemployed from what they wanted to do, would have preferred doing, rather than schlep up to New York and looking for work here. So we have this 
situation constantly, the minimum wage laws are constantly causing this unemployment. One, another case, again, a sort of exemption kind of case, where it's again very clear, it was a few years ago also, when minimum wage laws are extended to the crab packing industry. Now, crab packing is a situation where, particularly in North Carolina, crab packing is a marginal industry. The reason being, North Carolina is a very peculiar state because there's no port. In most southern states, for example, have a big port somewhere, Charleston or Savannah or whatever. But in North Carolina, there's no real port. All the big cities are inland. And the, of course, crab packing has to be done on the coast. So there's a high transportation cost to get the crabs to pack the crabs and ship it to the major centers of consumption. Because of this, North Carolina crab packing firms are the most marginal in the whole crab packing industry. Well, sure enough, some few years ago, minimum wage laws were extended to the crab packing, and bingo, a whole bunch of North Carolina crab packing firms go bankrupt, and a whole bunch of North Carolina crab packing employees are rendered unemployed. Tens of thousands because of this. Again, you had a kind of immediate situation, which is fairly evident. Uh, talk about unemployment. Who are going to be these marginal workers? Well, they're going to be the least skilled workers. Why they're least skilled, this is a philosophic point which economists need not get into. Less educated, maybe the less skilled period, maybe it's their culture, whatever it happens to be, at this point, happen to be least skilled. Teenagers, for example, are usually less skilled than adults because they're just starting out. It's sort of an apprentice situation. Negroes, for various reasons, are less skilled than white workers. So we would expect then, if, if a minimum wage law comes in, to disemploy more highly and more proportionately, one, teenage workers, and two, Negro workers, and either whites or adults. We will see how this works in a minute. Before getting to the figures, I should also talk about unemployment rates. Unemployment is defined as, uh, in the numerator, you have number of people seeking work. Obviously not working at the present time. And in the denominator, you have those working plus those seeking work. The denominator is called the labor force. The labor force, in other words, the number of people who are both have jobs and are looking for jobs. So this is the number of unemployed divided by the labor force. This gives you the unemployment percentage, which we read every month, you know, 5.5% or whatever it happens to be. This gives you the, the ratio. How do you know who's seeking work? Well, that's, of course, a very difficult problem. It calls for all sorts of higher radiocination, empirical investigation. We don't really know. It's a very tricky kind of thing. But at least, presumably, and looking at changes in the unemployment rate over a few years, you can sort of say, well, it may be fairly accurate. But there's a problem, no question about that. Statisticians are in very bad shape here. On one hand, it can be people who are not working and don't want to work. On the other hand, there are people who might not be seeking work because they're so discouraged. They like to be working, but they're so discouraged they've given up seeking. How do you measure that? Well, it's obviously very difficult. With that caveat, we go on to the relationship. This is a, uh, an old Friedman Rosen pamphlet called... I forget the title of it. It was published by the Free Society Association. The Minimum Wage, Who Pays? That's the title. There are lots of other studies, incidentally, on minimum wages, all of which confirm the theory, or illustrate the theory, I should say. But the Freeman Bowser thing, I think, is the most dramatic. As far as I know, has ever been, nobody's really attempted to refute. One column, you have the federal minimum wage law, federal minimum wage rate. Then you have a number of years. years. Then you have the percentage based on this fraction, of Negro teenage unemployment. This is actually the male unemployment, but there are later figures on female unemployment which collaborate with this. And then white teenage unemployment, and the unemployment rate there. I should say again about unemployment rate. We see a lot of juggling with the rate. 
But usually it was considered full employment. In other words, a situation where you consider everything as sort of hunky-dory. Full employment was used to be something like 3%. For one thing, you have to have a certain percentage. Even if you have a, a very booming economy and no problem with labor, people, especially in the United States, people were always leaving work and going somewhere else, leaving occupations or shifting to something else. They moved from New York to California. All this takes some time. During this time period, they're unemployed officially. This unemployment is called frictional unemployment. It means that this is part of the friction of moving from one place to the other. This frictional unemployment rate is considered to be about 3%. In England, it's something like 1% or 2%, because in England, first of all, people don't move very much. And second of all, if they have to move, they haven't got very far to go. <laughs> Small country. In the United States, however, it's a big, huge place, and if you move from Massachusetts to California, you're, you know, it's a long undertaking. So-called frictional process of quitting and then readjusting and then finding another job, all that stuff, is 3%. Recession rate. Well, this is kind of difficult. What, what do you mean by recession? But a sort of a recession rate is something like 6 to 7% or 5 to 7 or whatever. Let's call that a recession unemployment. The thing is, they've been redefining full employment recently because the employment rate used to be considered 3%. Then they crept up to 4 because the government statisticians... When you're dealing with government, there's two ways of solving a problem. Or I should say one way of solving a problem. And that is, the redefine it so it ain't no problem anymore. If you say the full employment rate is 3%, and the unemployment rate is really 5%, then you have this big worry that you get this 2% gap, what do you do about it? If you can't solve that, you simply redefine full employment to 5%. Then you haven't got any problem anymore. That's essentially what the government economists have been doing. They now consider, five, I think, full employment is 5%. And everything is great, right? <laughs> So this is, this is one way of doing it. If you can't solve a problem, you redefine it out of existence. Recession rate, let's say 6-7%. A really depression rate, a really hot shot rate is, say, 10% unemployment. That's really a rough rate, which we might be getting to fairly soon, I think, if the government messes up the energy crisis, as it has been doing. And then you have the 1929 rate, the really super depression rate, which continued approximately from 1929 to approximately 1940, the government got us out of the depression, manufacturing a, a, a huge world war. In that situation, we have unemployment rate of, say, 25%. That's really a rough one, 20 to 25%. See, one way the government gets you out of unemployment through a war, if there are 10 million unemployed, let's say, and you draft the 10 million to the army, then you ain't got no unemployment anymore. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're not seeking work. They're no longer in the labor force. They're out there fighting, being killed, or whatever, and they're off the labor market which is another reason why many times statists are in favor of a large army. <laughs> Let's get back to our chart now. Now that we put unemployment rates in perspective, we have our freeman rosen chart. But before 1949, federal minimum wage, let's say from World War II to 1949, was $0.40 cents an hour. Another thing I should say about minimum wage laws is one great way of overcoming minimum wage laws. That's inflation. In other words, if suddenly the government jacks up the minimum wage to $5 an hour, let's say, we, you know, half the population might be unemployed. The way to overcome this was one way to repeal the law. A craftier way to overcome it is by inflating so much that the $5 doesn't mean anything. It's about equivalent of a dollar. <laughs> you wipe out unemployment that way. The crafty way of doing it. Before 1949, the Negro teenage unemployment rate was something like 8%. And the white rate was 8%. The uh, teenage unemployment rate might tend to be larger. They're less um, mobile, etc. We still have 8% is fairly large already. If you're looking at the sort of recession level, but still in all, it wasn't too drastic, and the rate was the same for Negro and whites. And the interesting thing there is we now talk, economists now talk about the Negro-white teenage unemployment gap as if it's some sort of God-given phenomenon. 
But before 1949, it wasn't. The unemployment rate was the same for whites and Negro teenagers. Okay, then comes the, the first big jacking up of the minimum wage rate, 75 cents an hour, in 1949-50. It takes about six months for the economy to rev up and adjust to this stuff. Within about six months, by God, we suddenly have the white rate goes up to about 11% depression level. The Negro rate goes up to 14%, which is a lot higher. This is the beginning of the famous gap, the Negro-white teenage unemployment gap, the function of minimum wage law, comes in with a 1949 change in the law. Then comes, unfortunately for most of us, fortunately, however, for the unemployed labor force, then comes the Korean War, big boom, big graft, inflation, and so forth. Korean War comes in, 1950 to 53, and the thing sinks back, goes back to 8 and 8. We're back to 8 and 8. Everybody forgets about the Negro-white unemployment gap, and everything's hotsy totsy except we're killing Koreans, and they're killing us, and so on and so on. On the, on the minimum wage front, everything's great. <laughs> <laughs> the, the white rate goes up from 10% to 14%, which is bad enough. The Negro teenage rate, however, makes this big dramatic breakthrough leap to 24%. So, now we have a Negro teenage unemployment rate at 24%, super depression level, 1929 depression level, which might have some correlation between that and, uh, and, 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 and Negro rioting going on later Certainly not implausible to ponder that. You have one quarter of the teenage population seeking work and not getting it. And it might cause a certain amount of edginess in the population. <laughs> and this continues from then on. The point is this, we now reach a big new plateau in the minimum wage unemployment structure. Here we have the big Negro-white unemployment gap, which continues forever from then on. It's a permanent part of the American heritage. And we have a very high teenage Negro unemployment rate, which also continues as a permanent part of the American heritage. And that's it. And it was almost as if a diabolical hand was at work. Because then, from then on, Freeman and Brosen show that every time the unemployment, unemployment rate would dip a little bit, Congress would jack up the minimum wage again, another 10 cents, another nickel, and it would shoot it up again. <laughs> it's almost as if there's some guiding diabolic hand down there wanting you know, higher unemployment. The thing is, approximately since then. In 1966, Freeman and Brosen wrote their article to point this out and say, look, look, this is what's been happening. And they were then debating the great new breakthrough in minimum wage, which is to raise the minimum wage to $1.65 an hour from what dollar a quarter, I think, what had reached by these little minute steps. And Friedman warned, the, went down and testified before Congress and warned that if you do this, if you raise the minimum wage rate to $1.60 an hour, you're going to have 33% unemployment, teenage Negro unemployment. And they all said he was crazy, he's ridiculous, there's no, no relation whatsoever between minimum wage and employment. Sure enough, they put it in, and sure enough, within a year or two, Teenage Negro unemployment rate was up to about 33, 34, 35, where it, stayed, where it remains to this day. So we have 35% unemployment. Now, according to Brosen, who uh, I have personal contact with, the rate is really much higher because if you include the seeking work part, a lot of teenage Negroes are discouraged, are really seeking work and discouraged, they figure there's no point in seeking it, no point in going down to the office and whatever and trying to find, find jobs. You include all that in, the rate is something like 60, 60%. So, you have now this permanent problem. And sure enough, the AFL-CIO are in the process of passing minimum wage laws up to $2, two and a quarter, or whatever. I forget, so I'm not familiar with the latest agitation, but something like that. And if we continue that, if the inflation doesn't absorb the whole rate, uh, as much as, you can have as much unemployment as you want by simply increasing minimum wage. <laughs> this is my friend, and this is other people. 
And here we have this clear-cut case. As I say, the second line of defense of the advocates of minimum wage is, well, they don't deserve working at below $2 an hour, and it's better to be on welfare or whatever, uh, which is a peculiar position it takes, seems to me. There are other sinister forces, where there's, and there's a sort of misguided idealist, misguided liberal humanitarians who want to raise up the poor and do it by disemploying them. So that's, that's the misguided part of it. But then there are also more sinister forces at work. I've already mentioned labor unions. Keeping, you know, restricting the supply curve of labor, pushing it to the left. For example, uh, in the Friedman Rosen pamphlet, they quote Senator Javits in a speech that he made in the mid 60s before Congress or the Senate, uh, defending a higher minimum wage. And what he said was, we can't allow the product of cheap labor to come up from the South, where wage laws are, are lower, to, to interfere with and outcompete our heroic uh, textile manufacturers in New York and so forth. And here we, we touch on another important nub of the situation, which is the, the use of, of imposing higher wage costs, or any cost for that matter, the use of imposing higher costs on the whole industry in order to, to shaft your competitors. In this situation, we have a kind of a regional thing in the United States where the North has been industrialized much faster than the South. As a result of that, since the marginal productivity of Northern workers has been higher than Southern workers because of the increased capital investment, Northern wage rates have been generally higher than Southern wage rates. Now, the result of this situation in a free market is a twofold tendency toward equilibrating, a long-run equilibrating this, this situation. One, through Southern workers moving to the North and taking advantage of the higher wage rates and thereby tending to raise wage rates in the South and lower them in the North and bring them into equilibrium. And secondly, the tendency of, of Northern employers and Northern capital to move from the North to the South to take advantage of the lower wage rates there. This tends toward industrializing the South. This is a sort of a general long-run tendency. Now, this general long-run tendency is particularly important, of course, in, the, in those industries in the North which are marginal anyway, which are inefficient, obsolescent, and so forth, such as textiles, such as printing, and so forth, etc. We can do it much better, much better by going out to the South, have a much better labor pool, cheap, cheaper land prices, and so forth and so on. So we have a situation where, indeed, the printers, southern printers and southern textile manufacturers can have compete northern. Now what the north, what the northern manufacturers would like to do, what they love to do, is to have a tariff line at the Potomac, <laughs> a high tariff barrier, because they can use the same bloody arguments that they do against Chinese and Japanese labor in Africa and so forth. We are forced to compete with these uh, terrible low-wage uh, employers, except in this case it's within the United States. So the point is, it's the same sort of argument. The fact that there's no national boundary between us is really not important. As a matter of fact, if there had been, if the Civil War had been successful in the southern part, there would have been a tariff, there would have been a boundary, and probably would have been a very high tariff barrier uh, against southern products. They'd like to impose a, a high cost barrier on the South, preferably by a protective tariff. Since they can't do that, since that's still unconstitutional, it's one of the few things that's still yet unconstitutional, the northern manufacturers have turned to a subtler device the inefficient ones, which is to push for a big federal minimum wage law, because since, wage laws, since wages are lower in the South than in the North, if you impose a federal minimum wage on everybody, you're going to hit far more Southern workers and employers than well Northern. So in other words, you're imposing higher costs on everybody, supposedly, yet most of the people being hit are the Southern, southern competitors. As I say, Javits spelled this out blatantly in the speech. We, what we have here is an unholy alliance between liberal humanitarians who don't know what they're doing, uh, AFL-CIO people who know very well what they're doing, and, and northern, inefficient northern manufacturers also know what they're doing, who are the, these latter two forces are being largely responsible for the 
money and the muscle and the lobbying for the increased minimum wage. So we have, once again, as in many other things, we have an unholy alliance between woolly-headedness and sinister interest, both working hand-in-hand. So the disadvantage of the rest of the population. There's a very, a very good paperback book by uh, Stewart and somebody on the economic effects of minimum wage laws, which goes, goes in lengthy analysis. One of the things they found out, for example, is the result of minimum wage laws and the textile industry and other industries is the increased concentration in the industry. In other words, to particularly bankrupt the smaller employers who can't afford to pay the higher wage rate. So another sinister interest at work here is larger firms within the same industry have to put hobbles on the competition of the smaller competitors, drive them out of business or bank or quasi-bankrupt them. And this is true, incidentally, of, of, of social legislation in general. Okay, that, uh, I think, covers the minimum wage. As I also want to get into today, into the, to wrap up the whole labor sphere, the whole population question. So there are fads in population. There's a lot of population hysteria now. The thing is, I'm, I'm at this point old enough to remember population hysteria in the opposite direction. When I was growing up, in the late 30s and early 40s, there was lots of population hysteria, except it was the reverse of the present one. The idea then was too few babies being born. In France, for example, the birth rate has fallen considerably for the last previous 20 years. They were talking about racial suicide or national suicide in front of the French population. There'd be no Frenchmen left in 50 years. You extrapolate these trends, you can come up with almost anything. And also, all these countries needed a lot of people, a lot of young, physically fit young men going to the army and get shot. And the source of that cannon fodder would dry up. <laughs> so that was a terrible thing, too. So there's a big intellectual and cultural push for, for a larger population. And as I say, the population hysteria then was in, the, in that direction. Uh, right now, the last few years, of course, the fashion is just the opposite. So anytime a baby gets born, there's practically a, almost a bonfire lit outside to <laughs> protest. <laughs> and we have a zero population growth groups, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But we have, I think, a very similar kind of irrationality in part of both, both forces. One of the points is, in general, in an economic analysis of population, is that usually you get about the population that, that you need, in the sense that the population, the quantity of population is usually about what's, in the long run, about what's needed, or about what's best for the capital structure and the degree of market, the division of labor, and all the rest of it. And so what's overpopulation in one area might be, or in the same area, might be underpopulation in very different circumstances, and vice versa. For example, we all know about the evil Sparta. The first, Sparta was the first case of, of uh, community population control. It was a rather rigorous case. It was a case, <laughs> even our current big ZPG people might balk a, a wee bit at the Spartan method. <laughs> first of all, I remember the Spartans had no Fifth Amendment and no uh, Bill of Rights or any of that stuff. <laughs> so they went all out. The Spartan situation, Sparta in ancient Greece, any new Spartan baby would immediately be put out in the woods at night for 24 hours by itself. If it died, then it was too bad. It showed it was unfit for the regular Spartan life. And if it lived, then it was, you know, accepted in the community and raised it. This is a primitive method of population control. It's before our modern techniques. The reason why the Spartans did that is not because they were total monsters or because they were somehow anti-baby in some philosophic sense. The reason they did it was very simple. They were, they were living in a static society. There's no free market, to say the least. I mean, it's a very totalitarian caste kind of system, militarist kind of system. And so there are no jobs available for increased people. It's very simple. It's only really a free market that constantly generates new jobs for new people. If you have a status society or a status economy, 
where everybody, you know, the son of a carpenter becomes a carpenter, and the son of a butcher becomes a butcher, and all that. What, what happens if the butcher has two sons? And then you're in real trouble. And how does he do? So uh, either you put him out in the woods at night, or you do something else. So the point is, the population problem really exists when you have a when you have a caste kind of system. You have a non-free system, a pre-industrial society, or a post-industrial society with, which is so controlled and restricted they can't do much. And so the Spartans did it not because they were philosophically anti-baby, because they were driven to it by these economic considerations. On the other hand, Athens didn't have to do it, because Athens was a flourishing market kind of economy, and they were you know, highly commercialized. They didn't suffer from any kind of overpopulation question. So uh, again, how much what the optimum population is, it depends very much on what's going on in the whole system. For example, the North American continent, when Columbus discovered America, the North American continent, including Mexico and Canada and the United States had approximately a million Indians total. It's very difficult to figure out. Say a million Indians, is about it. And these million Indians were not exactly living in an affluent state. If there had been 10% more Indians, they all might have, they all might have starved. They were in a very limited kind of system. But the million Indians are just about the right population, say, for the economic terms, for the whole land area of the North American continent. Now, of course, we have something like 400 million living in the same place, area where a million Indians had lived living, all of whom are living in a much higher living standard, even the poorest American and Canadian, much higher living standard than the average Indian, and without too much trouble, the reason being, of course, the difference between increased capital investment, the productivity, the, the, whole, the whole market economy which comes into the picture. So 400 million Indians back in 1490 would have been a holy mess, and an unholy mess, I can say, with everybody killing each other for the few pieces of food that were left. 400 million people now are in pretty, a fairly good shape. So again, the population is not a sort of an absolute from outside. It depends on, on the economics of it. Depends on what's going on with the capital investment, with the rest, the whole standard of living, the, the production system, and so forth. You can't really isolate one from the other. To give an example about population, right now, even not just talking about the Indians, countries with a very high population density, probably the highest population density is say Holland, at least one of the highest. Holland has an enormous number of people per square mile, yet they have a very high standard of living. Japan has a very high population density, has a high standard of living, growing. Hong Kong has a huge population density, an enormous number of people, practically no resources at all, has a very high standard of living. <clears throat> On the other hand, there are many very poor areas in the world which have a very low population density. Many parts of South America have very few people in it. There are a few Indians living on practically nothing. So you have, here you have a situation of very low population and low standard of living. Many parts of Africa have very few people in it, too. See, our, our image of the teeming masses in underdeveloped countries is really mostly in Asia. But when you get to Africa and South America, you have a very different kind of situation. Even in Asia, as I say, you have teeming masses in Hong Kong, all doing very well. Also, in, say, in China, which is authentically well, highly populated, I wouldn't say at least, most of the population is in the coastal areas. Inland, you have very few people. There's really no correlation between quantity, between population density and living standards. And within the United States, the ZPG barracks, have reached a hysterical culmination just at the point, by some kind of tragic irony or whatever, or non-tragic irony, just at the point where the population growth is decreasing, leveling off. In other words, in the last few years, we've had a big leveling off in the birth rate, and which will presumably continue, helped along by the ZPG people, but certainly a trend which, which started before ZPG and will continue on after, because uh, for various reasons, economic and cultural, etc., Birth rate is leveling off very rapidly, and we'll get to a ZPG point in a couple of years at this rate. Sort of typical characteristic, the high point of ZPG hysteria comes to the point where the ZPG goals are being achieved anyway. 
basic reasons for this fairly simple. The, the first thing that happens when you industrialize, uh, this is what happened in Western Europe, it's what happened, what happened in the underdeveloped countries in the 20th century. The first thing that happens vis-a-vis population is the cut the death rate. Lots of people who would have died at the age of six now live because of modern medicine. So you have a big cut in the death rate. Now this big cut, if you have a same birth rate and a big cut in the death rate, what you're going to have is an increase in population, usually a dramatic increase in population. This is not because people are breeding faster, particularly, it's because they're not dying off as fast. So in 19th century England, you had a big increase in population, the same way in, in many 20th century developed countries. And what has always happened up to now, let's put it that way, which seems to be fair, a bit fair to happen in the future, is as the economy develops, as the standard of living goes up, each family decides to cut their birth rate because they don't want to have eight families. For one thing, if you have eight kids in a, in a farm situation, rural farm situation, it's usually an economic asset because each kid at the age of there's no child labor laws on the farms. Each kid at the age of five or something starts milking the cow or whatever else. And so kids are usually a net economic asset for the farmer. But as you urbanize and as you industrialize, this isn't true. As I mentioned before about the keeping child labor out of child labor laws, even so, even without that, I presume that kids would very often be a net economic liability for the parent for a minute for a long time, if not forever. So kids in urban America now are really consumption good rather than, rather than investment, rather than a factor of production. Uh, as the kid gets older and goes off on his own, he, he doesn't pile back much money to the parents' offers anyway. So the kid, as far as the parent is concerned, is a net economic liability. He might be a great psychic asset, but economically, he's a liability. So, as a result of which, and it doesn't take a great genius to, to realize this, you have big cuts in the birth rate and, and few. In other words, as the economy develops and industrializes and urbanizes, the birth rate tends to fall quite dramatically. I could tell even, even I mean, this of course is journalistic, in my own family, my grandparents, great-grandparents had about eight kids, eight kids from both sides, and the grandparents had less than that, and the present generation has about one kid apiece of that, so, or two. So the big falling off in, in birth rates as the people standing living go up. I presume this will continue. So you have an initial cut in the death rate. This causes a big increase in population. Everybody gets hysterical about this because if you project it, you project the trend, you have 10 billion people living on each square foot and all that nonsense. But actually what happens is since people can control their lives, you ensue after a certain gap of a couple of generations, you're falling off from the birth rate and you wind up in a sort of a, a pleasant situation. Within the United States, by the way, it appears to everybody we're too, everything is too crowded and books have been written. This guy Jacques Ellul, for example, who's kind of an interesting phenomenon because Jacques Ellul is a French reactionary, the deepest die, reactionary in the truest sense, he's a Calvinist nut. He wants to go back before the industrial era and go back to everybody weaving his own boots and all that sort of stuff. He hates technology with a purple passion. So he has made great cause with the new left, which for very different reasons hate technology. And he'll think of Elwell as being some sort of a new leftist, and they should only know. <laughs> At any rate, Elwell talks about the good old days, the glorious old days of the Middle Ages, and everybody was mobile. Things weren't crowded and people had a lot of room and so a lot of breathing space. Of course, a lot of nonsense. In the Middle Ages, everybody lived in a little hut with five pigs and eight kids and that sort of stuff and never moved at all, never saw it beyond the boundaries of five miles. So why do we think it was so crowded? Actually, if you look at the statistics, we find in the United States, I think the last census, 1970 census, showed that from 1960 to 1970, it was an absolute fall in population for, I think, one-third of the counties in the United States. Decline of population. That's just a leveling off of growth. So you have a lot of ghost towns out there in the Middle West and the Southwest. If you've ever seen the movie The Last Picture Show, you see this 
depressing picture of the total collapse, a gradual collapse of this town. People leave, people go to the big city, and so forth and so on. And an absolute decline in a lot of population. There's a lot of, also, there's a lot of land out there with no people on it in the West. You might ask the question, who wants to go there? But that's a different, that's a different question altogether. The point is, there's lots of land, lots of empty spaces. Even the inner cities have not really increased in population. New York City has remained the same total population for about 30, 40 years now, the same 7 million. And we haven't increased at all. The thing which has increased in the United States, the population has increased, is the suburbs. No question about that. But aside from the suburbs, there really has no, been no population growth worth speaking about. And the total itself is, is, is leveling off. The reason why we think it's more crowded is that people are too affluent. As people stand and living go up, they zip around a lot. They go to Europe, they go to go vacationing, and so forth and so on. They, they make themselves visible, which they weren't before. See, the medieval peasant there in his hut with his eight pigs wasn't visible to anybody, except for whoever happened to wander in. Since there were no roads, <laughs> since there were no roads in those days, that wasn't very likely. So you have a situation where things seem more crowded, really, but it's not because of population growth, it's because of, it's really because people are better off and they, so they zip around a lot more. And they come into the big city and they do all sorts of, they do all sorts of things which make things appear crowded. I don't know uh, what solution there is to that, for this crowding thing. I mean, this, it boils down to either going off to the hills of Montana and, and becoming a hermit, which is one solution, or killing all these people, <laughs> which is not a very libertarian solution. <laughs> Also not very practical, or hoping they become impoverished and go back to where they you know, stop traveling. It's also pretty impractical as well as being pretty uh, pretty evil. So at any rate, the, we, we boil that to not really population, but the, the strains and crowding of, of a more affluent society. It becomes very helpful in the economic sense to to think in terms of again not population as an absolute, but relatively to the economy. So look at this diagram. One more diagram to inflict. In this diagram, we have standard of living or growth per person, I mean, or, or product per person on the y-axis and number of people on the x-axis. And if we had no people at all, in other words, if a great new play came out and wiped all of us out tonight, wiped the whole world out tonight, there won't be no production anymore. So we started at, we started at the origin point. And we keep going up. In other words, what we have is, as we keep increasing the number of people, we increase the production per capita. Until finally you reach a point where it reaches a maximum and then levels off and starts declining. This is uh, standard of living again. Now picture this, this, this maximum point, by the way, is, is called in economics the optimum point. In other words, at this point, this is the optimum population. The optimum population would be the x, the zero that's on the x-axis to get up to this maximum standard of living production. Now the thing is, I don't like the use, I don't like the term optimum. Very unfortunate because it implies ethical and ethical imprimatur. It doesn't really have to do it at all. It simply means maximum population and maximum standard of living per person. It doesn't necessarily have to be the ethical or moral optimum because it could very well be that people could say, well, I'd rather have more kids in the family and take a slight reduction in output, have five kids instead of two, and have a 10% income cut. Certainly not immoral for them to do this. So optimum population simply means Really, maximum population point per head for any level of population. For given, for every country, every economy, and every capital structure, every technological picture, there'll be some different kind of some different point. Point is again that the for the Indians it was far to the left of the United States. For the Indians the optimum population, let's say, was a million. For us, it might be who knows, more like 400 million. Picture 
half the country is dying tonight from you know, some plague. Let's say half the United States dies on a plague tonight. This cuts the labor force back to here on the chart. And this would mean that we have a lot of factories and a lot of productive equipment lying idle. This would cut the output per capita. We simply wouldn't have the people to man all the stuff which keeps the whole production system, the capital system together. The other hand, if we suddenly, Angel Gabriel came down and doubled the population overnight and cloned us all, sort of magically. You know, it's magic cloning with suddenly there'd be two Rothbards and so forth and so on. We have double the population. And then we have, a, again, a problem because we have too many people per the, per the machines or per the work for them to do, and the production per capita would go down. So we know pretty well if we either double the population overnight or halve it overnight, we'd be below the optimum population point. We don't know really what the optimum population is. Uh, point is, even the statisticians can't really tell us. But we know conceptually, and we know pretty much that the economy will tend to be in the long run more or less what the optimum is, at least not too far on either side of it. But you see, if you take the population growth, you don't account for these trends, you simply extrapolate the trend automatically, as, as many of these statisticians do, you'll wind up with 10, 10 billion people per square foot in the year 2200 or whatever the nonsense is. The point I'm trying to say is that the economist looks upon a population problem with benign neglect, to use a term which, is, which has been uh, used in other areas, figuring it all settle all about the right way, stop bellyaching about it. One of the reasons about the ZPG thing that's happened is, is that because in the first two decades, after, in the 1920s and 1930s, first two decades after World War I, the birth rate in the United States fell pretty dramatically. There's a sort of continuing fall in the birth rate. And the population rate, in, in turn, was also, the rate of population growth was falling. We're going to get to, a, we were getting to a ZPG kind of situation. For various reasons, both of affluence, the fact that women were becoming more career oriented, and so forth and so on. And the whole culture had changed, the idea that the function of the family is not necessarily have as many babies as possible, etc. So things are going on pretty well for the ZPG types. When bingo comes World War II, and then we had a sudden shift. Uh, and obviously, uh, one shot kind of shift in, in culture, cultural um, values. And the veterans came back from World War II. It was a big impetus for baby thing. It was an enormous shift back to the old idea that the place for women is in the home and hanging up curtains and producing lots of babies. That's presumably a reaction to the war, the fact that everybody was upset that uh, they were going to die in the war and they wanted a sense of immortality and they were rootless and all that. And the result of this was sort of a temporary 10, 20 year baby boom and baby-oriented culture we had for quite a while. And I interpret the whole ZPG thing as a, sort of an hysterical shift back to the what was what had been the trend anyway before 1945 and it probably continue to be anyway. And so we're getting back now to essentially the, uh, the affluent sort of uh, more women working and so forth and so on, which we were getting anyway in the 20s and 30s, which we're now, I think, coming back to. Well, I think that's basically what I have to say about population 